Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 310 of the Fun with Cars, Formula One, and Other Motorsports podcast, or episode 44 of 2021. I'm Robin Warner, and today I'm joined by the man who thinks whomever has the longest hair at the end of the championship deserves an extra eight points, Christopher Roche. Hey, Chris. Hey, Robin. You might want to rethink your strategy there because I'm pretty sure Antonio Giovinazzi has the longest hair. So maybe it's got to be longest hair in the top 10, something along those lines. Yeah, I've really got nothing. (laughs) (laughs) It is Wednesday morning, November 24th, and Chris and I are going to talk about the Qatar Grand Prix. And I have an interview with Ricky Taylor, who drives the Acura DPI car for Wayne Taylor Racing in IMSA and just finished a crazy championship uh, at Petit Le Mans. But anyway, Chris, is there any Formula One news to start off with? Yes, Mercedes attempts to disable or... uh... Disable, destabilize Red Bull and Max Verstappen before the Grand Prix by asking the uh, for the, the the lap 48 overtaking incident to be reviewed by the stewards was rejected. So that is now fair game. All the F1 drivers have duly noted that they can run people off the road. Yep, yep, and, totally uh, fine. As long yep. as you're going too fast to make the corner, everyone else is at, is uh, at your discretion in terms of driving line and everything. Yeah, the, uh, it will be interesting to see if we can get through the remainder of the season without Red Bull and Mercedes or more appropriately Toto Wolff and Christian Horder from having a fit because it does look like they're on the verge of it. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. I, <laughs> it's, it is getting to that level and it is interesting how much more it started elevated but then maintained more or less a pretty high level intensity, but not escalating levels of intensity between Max and Lewis. However, the team principals seem to be getting less and less interested in playing fair. Indeed, and as we'll discuss, Mr. Horner got into trouble for all sorts of other reasons over the course of the weekend. (laughs) Had to see the stewards and make an apology, yes. Real quick, uh, when it comes to IMSA news, I actually have a correction to make. I will talk about this with a little bit more detail when I get to my Ricky Taylor interview. But the Cadillac team that uh, won the championship, uh, the team championship, also did win the driver's championship. So Ricky Taylor and Philippe Albuquerque did not win the driver's championship. That was my mistake and also Imps' mistake in the sense that they didn't update their website. That was still a race race old data that I was looking at. That is my fault. I should have paid closer attention to that, um, but it was uh, it was old data that I looked at. So that that is my a mea culpa and an excuse wrapped into one. Okay. Well, good good of you to clear that up, mate. Yeah, I, you know it's uh, it's always good. It, it makes me. I actually have at my disposal at this very moment two different teas to choose from. Both of them hot. One is black. One has milk and sugar. And uh, that felt like a milk and sugar moment after that particular uh, confession slash blaming session. Maybe Long Island iced might have been a better option. (laughs) (laughs) That is the iced tea that the English can get behind. Maybe I should uh, maybe I should sneak just sneak in some unsweetened iced tea and tell everyone it's just Long Island iced tea. And they're like, well, it's not very good. I'm like, oh, well, I'll work on my recipe. But hey. You know, there was a Formula One race in Qatar. It was the 
first Formula One race in Qatar. All but two drivers had never been to the actual track, save for uh, Sergio Perez. I believe that was 2009. And our favorite driver, Mr. Mazepin, uh, who raced there in 2014, both in lower, lower level series. Oh, hang on. Okay. Let me, let me interject there. So the guy that damaged his car so badly in FP1 that he could contest FP2 had already raced at that track? Yes, sir. Yes, sir, he had. <laughs> Love yeah. it. Yeah, well, listen, I know you and Nikita are close. I, I'm sure that he'll give you all the dirty details. But, uh, yeah, and Sergio said, yeah, it's basically meaningless. First of all, it was so long ago, I don't remember it. Second of all, the track's changed, and uh, I don't think it's going to add up to anything. And, you know, that more or less proved correct. It was an interesting surface, an interesting track. It actually proved reasonably okay for overtaking opportunities, given the specific circumstances of the race. But it was bizarre to have such a low-grip high tire degradation kind of surface to deal with. That was a little bit new for drivers and added to some strategy. And it proved to be a relatively interesting weekend, though not a traditional, like, bonkers track that we would really seek out. Yeah, I don't really find it that memorable. I mean, it it was okay. It, It did the job. The drivers seemed to really like racing around it and driving around it at speed. It was hard for me to tell one quarter from another, other than that, that one went left and another one went right, uh, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, the, the curbs uh, were quite aggressive if you went uh, beyond the first set of curbs. Uh, other than that... Well, that's just I, it. The curbs were actually really lenient, but then the secondary curbs were quite aggressive, and many drivers learned that the hard way. Yeah, I mean, the, the overtaking was all really confined to one corner wasn't it turn one uh, pretty much uh yeah i mean do we really need to to ha- go there again I, I don't know maybe if all the other tracks aren't available <laughs> we'll keep it in mind <laughs> I <have> to say <laughs> it wasn't one of my favorites well there's a track or two in europe that i wouldn't mind there there is this interesting phenomenon that's going on with formula one where they have successfully made it truly a world championship but In doing so, the heart of Formula One, the foundation of Formula One, the beginnings of Formula One was, of course, in Europe. And there are definitely some places in Europe that we could spend more time in as opposed to going to the Middle East as often as we do. At the same time, the Middle East offers pretty darn consistent weather. It offers plenty of warmth and it offers plenty of hospitable folks with money that want to pay for and watch a Formula One race. So I'm sympathetic to the plight of a Formula One management. However, in terms of being a true world championship, we're pretty heavy-handed in the Middle East right now. Yeah, I mean, if we think about recent tracks that Formula One have gone to that are are better known as MotoGP or or bike tracks, you know, Portimao, Mugello, those sort of circuits stand out much more in my mind than than this one but yeah it wasn't a disaster it was acceptable i'm, I'm more interested and excited about uh, saudi arabia honestly it sounds like a more unique type of circuit um and and hopefully a bit more interesting it just i feel that a circuit any circuit has to have one at least signature corner 
it has to have something that really defines it, you know. And and obviously they didn't have much uh, topology to work with, right? It was pretty flat. It just didn't seem like they 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 created a really identifiable turn to my mind. So I just I just didn't find it that interesting, honestly, as a circuit layout. But but maybe other people did, so that's fine. It did provide us a race, and it did provide us a lot of. Well, I shouldn't say a lot, but definitely a few interesting talking points. It was fascinating to see, we can really put laser focus on this now, the relative performance between Red Bull and Mercedes. And I found it very fascinating. Hamilton himself, while being interviewed, I think this was the the pre-race, like the Thursday interviews, Hamilton was saying, it's a lot less about the engine than people think that brought us extra performance these last few Grand Prix. Now, how much truth is in there is a little bit suspect. He might just been asked to downplay the engine. Who knows? But I found it fascinating to see that here we are at a pretty darn fast track. Mercedes still seems to have the edge in terms of car performance, but a lot less pronounced than it was in Brazil when we looked at Friday and Saturday performance. Yeah, so one thing that Toto Wolff mentioned after the Grand Prix weekend was that they hadn't fitted the new ICE that was uh, that was installed in Hamilton's car in Brazil for this race. They used a different engine from the pool, and they're going to reintroduce the Brazil spec engine in Saudi Arabia. Now, whether or not that's 100% correct, or if he's a little bit of gamesmanship there, I don't think we, we 100% know for sure. But certainly, the Mercedes was working really well around the circuit. I mean, oddly enough, Botas looked like the quickest guy all the way through Friday, and his pace vaporized when it mattered <laughs> Saturday qualifying during the race. Yeah. But uh, Hamilton picked up the, the baton, and, I mean, he was in a class of his own in qualifying. I mean, his, his pole lap was almost uh, six-tenths of a second faster than Verstappen, uh, who I think had his quickest time deleted because of the double yellow infringement. But, you know, he, he was just able to pit Bottas to get that all-important second place, although obviously both Verstappen and Bottas were, were penalised uh, in their starting positions because they both passed waved yellow flags on their on their second quickest runs in Q3. Um, but and that yeah. was because of Pierre Gasly, I believe? Yeah, had... he stopped, stopped on the right, didn't he, in the start-finish straight. He had a tire, tire failure. He stopped off track, and it was a really fascinating play that happened there because it was a waved single yellow for Botas and then a waved double yellow for Verstappen. And yet there was an argument that it wasn't clear that it was time to slow down or not. Neither of them slowed down sufficiently anyway. And because it was single yellow, Botas got a three-place penalty, and Verstappen got a five-place penalty because his were double yellow. What, what did you make of that whole interplay? Anyone who's done any racing of any description from the, the most uh, minor club-level racing all the way up to international and, and Formula One level knows that you're supposed to slow down when you see a yellow f- flag. That's kind of like rule number one that they teach you on day one of racing school. Uh, now, I know that they have a quite a complex system with gantry lights and cockpit lights that supplement the flags, but ultimately, if you see a marshal with a yellow flag, you know you have to lift. Um, and curiously, those two decided not to, and they got punished for it. 
Carlos Sainz was also cited, but that he was actually able to demonstrate through the onboard data that he had um, he had lifted and slowed sufficiently, so he didn't get a penalty. So it, it was a little bit. I, I do have sympathy for Verstappen and Bottas because the car was off at one side. It didn't look like there was really any great d uh, deal of danger for the driver or marshals. But still, I mean, rule is a rule. You, you can't slow down for a yellow. And so I wasn't surprised they got penalties, really. So we get to the start of the race. And and I apologize if there's anything you want to talk about about qualifying outside of that. Uh, oh, I think we should... I think we should touch on a couple of things. I mean, all so right, first let's do all, that, and then we'll get to the race. Yeah, I mean, Gasly's performance in the in the AlphaTauri was sensational. I mean, fourth on the grid. I mean, he is, his one lap pace has been very strong the last few Grand Prix, but fourth fastest, which actually then resulted uh, in a in a front his first ever front row start. Um, you know, was was a, a, you know remarkable effort from him, and then also the the Alpine resurgence with. Uh, Obviously, Alonso uh, qualifying fifth, but then getting third with the penalties. And then even Ocon was also in the top ten. So those were really notable, I thought. that, that uh, I mean, we've seen AlphaTauri has been pretty quick recently. Um, so that wasn't so surprising. But Alpine have been struggling. And all of a sudden, this track seemed to really suit them. And, and the car and the drivers came to life. So, And they demonstrated that on quali you know, in qualifying on Saturday and, and in the race on Sunday. And the counter to that, and also part of the reason why those two were able to qualify so high was Sergio Perez didn't even make it out of Q2. It was a reversal of fortunes for him, who had seen a stronger pace as of late, that he just, the Qatar Grand Prix, the Qatar circuit, wasn't suiting him. And this was a race he won in 2009 when he raced, I think it was GP2 Asia. And I'm pretty sure he won that race. So... Yeah, it, unfortunate turn of events for uh, Mr. Perez. I read the funniest comment uh, on online that someone was claiming that Perez's Q2 finish in, in qualifying was really r the real pace of the Red Bull and that it wasn't Perez's fault at all, but that's where the, 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 that's the pace of the car. And, uh, you know, it's only Max's genius that allows him to compete with watching i mean just the most absurd statement i've ever heard i mean yeah there's no doubt that the red bull is is if not the quickest guard this season certainly one of the quickest at most tracks um and there's no doubt Verstappen does a good job but there's also no doubt that perez really underperformed i mean there's no way you should be being out qualified by aston martin alpine ferrari mclaren uh, yeah. And AlphaTauri, I mean, there's who, no way. Who was quoted? Was that Verstappen's girlfriend? <laughs> I mean, who? I, d I don't know. It was obviously some died-the-wall Perez fan who, who really thought that his man had still delivered an absolutely monumental lap to achieve 11th <laughs> in that car. I guess I'm trying. To me, it seemed like a backhanded compliment. That's why I went with a diehard Verstappen fan. It's just like, oh, it's just... Verstappen's on another level that he can pull a car from fifth fastest to first fastest for a season. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, there are some yeah. deluded people out there. But anyway, let's let's move on to the race. <laughs> so the race happens. Verstappen starts seventh by lap whatever two or three maybe. I mean, it was a few laps in. He was second behind Hamilton. It's as if the penalties didn't occur. And, you know, Botas, of course, went the wrong way. And uh, it more or less, first few laps in, 
it unfolded to be exactly what we expected right after Saturday qualifying anyway. I mean, what what struck me, I think, around lap 15, 16, is that it's sort of, it's like men against boys, isn't it? You've got Hamilton and Verstappen that are at an entirely different level to everybody else. I mean, that's how it looked on, it's not always that way, but that's certainly how it looked in the Qatar Grand Prix for me. Um, you know, Max has got a very good car, but from seventh on the grid, he should he should have a harder time getting past, you know, the, the five cars immediately in front of him, between him and Hamilton. But he made passing Norris and Sainz look like, you know, a cakewalk. And, um, you know, Gasly and, and Alonso weren't hard at all. I mean, I, you know, the memory of, I was thinking as he was catching Alonso, the memory of Alonso's monumental efforts to hold Hamilton back in Hungary went through my mind. And I thought, oh, good, maybe Fernando can hold up Max for a lap or two. He didn't even go offline down the start-finish straight to impede Max. Max just drove past him as if he was on a freeway. I mean, extraordinary. I guess Alonso knew he had a chance of a good result and his fight wasn't really with Max. And so he just focused on maximising his own race on, on that particular occasion. But yeah, it was it was farcical how quickly Max made it through. And I mean, you know, it's no, it was a testimony to his his level and his uh, capability, really. I mean, he just made it look easy and it was brilliant driving uh, in a similar vein to what Hamilton did in Brazil. So I was thinking we were on for a race because Max got into second place and it was less than four seconds between him and Hamilton. Hamilton hadn't really taken advantage of him having to pass uh, drivers and, and, and pulled out uh, you know, a significant gap. So I thought, well, here we go, race on. And then Hamilton then decided to pull away um, fairly easily and controlled the race uh, and the gap throughout the throughout the Grand Prix fairly easily. But uh, but yeah, I mean they had pulled out more than two seconds a lap on Bottas by lap 17. Okay, Bottas is in traffic, but at that point I don't think he'd passed a single car. He'd just lost you know four places off his grid spot. So. Yeah, shocking differential between driver levels on Sunday, I thought. Yeah, it was a forgettable Grand Prix for Botas. I think we can just start and finish it right there. Um, but <laughs> I, I think we can, we we should. Alonso deserves some real praise here. He was gifted third on the grid instead of fifth because of the penalties, but he had a brilliant start to maintain that third. Looked like he was going to be, I think he was second for a few corners anyway. Or was he second for a few laps? Now I'm, I, I'm, I'm, my memory's fading on this. But uh, he was right there in front. Obviously had nothing for Hamilton. But did a great job to maintain third place. Just as you said, did not give Max any trouble. To me, it seemed like Alonso probably had his mindset, just as you were describing, and also saw the speed differential between his car and the Red Bull as he was approaching. He said, well, this is just a fool's errand. And let him by, but he, you know, skipped to the end of the race. Alonso finished on the podium. I- impressive for for the Alpine to finish on the podium. That's that's just really impressive. You have to give credit there. Yeah, first podium since 2014. Totally agree with you uh, that the Alpine was working well, and he completely took advantage of it. And um, you know, essentially starting third on the grid. And finishing third in the race, uh, it looked like he, he, you know, he was having a bit of a battle with Norris. Norris got his puncture, uh, which helped him. Um, and then, 
Obviously, Bottas uh, was looking like he was making a decent recovery drive, but then he had his puncture and, and that put pay to his race. And then Perez was closing on Alonso towards the end. Was, and I think Alonso was, was helped out a little bit by the, the virtual safety car. But you could argue um, that he may still have maintained third, even if those drivers had still hadn't had their issues. So, yeah, very, very good effort. And uh, I think thoroughly deserved. I mean, he's 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 shown touches of his old brilliance this season, even in a you know midfield car. Obviously, Ocon got lucky in Hungary with a little bit of help from Alonso, and it was Alonso's turn to get uh, for things to fall his way, and he definitely deserves it. Absolutely. I wanted to you know we're we don't need to follow this race chronologically so much. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the virtual safety cars because. They seem to help Hamilton in certain circumstances where he could maintain the gap he'd built while, if not entirely, virtually all of the safety cars were due to blown tires. And this gets back to the tire degradation we were talking about. The aggregate of this track and the secondary curbs of this track combined to be quite hard on the actual structure of the Pirelli tires. But the virtual safety cars come in and at times help Hamilton maintain his multi-second lead, his multiple second lead, um, and not have to worry about, you know, lucky restarts or unlucky restarts after an actual safety car. But at the same time, safety car is what robbed him of his final chance to get fastest lap of the race, which did end up going to Verstappen, which did change the gap of the championship from six points to eight and uh, I found that a curiosity to see how the virtual safety cars and fastest lap of the race intertwine to become an important strategic part of the race. Yeah I, I was surprised you, you thought that the VSC helped Hamilton because I didn't really get that sense. I, I thought it really favored Max because obviously Max was able to come in and get another set of tires late. In the he, he did take advantage of the VSC oh, oh. for a pit stop you're right. Yeah, so I, I thought we were going to have, you know, a, a, a slugfest for fastest lap um, on the worn medium compound tyres. Max obviously got it first, and I thought Hamilton was, was giving himself up for a clean lap to have a crew to get it back. But obviously when Max was able to switch tyres, that, that ended that, that particular battle. And you have to say, I mean, given, given the fact that the Mercedes and Hamilton were pretty dominant, for Max to, to come, you know, clearly second with fastest lap and limit the damage to only losing, you know, six points relative to Hamilton, it, it was a strong performance by him and really good damage limitation. So it leaves the championship in a really amazing spot going into the last two Grand Prix with just eight points between the two of them. And uh, obviously Max can win the title in Saudi if, uh, if things go his way and, and Lewis fails to... Uh, Really, I mean, Lewis needs to win. Lewis really needs to win both the, the last two races to, to have a chance of winning. And, and Max just needs to win one of them, I think. So it's all to play for for both of them. And they're both driving brilliantly, I have to say. I thought, uh, so we talked about Gasly's strong Saturday performance. I mean, dear Lord, he had an awful Sunday. I mean, he finished 11th from second on the grid. I don't think he had a puncture, but their tyre strategy certainly was, was out of sync with the rest of the field. And... Uh, he just his race pace just was was pretty lamentable, and he really struggled, you know. And Sonoda sort of also went backwards from eighth back to thirteenth. So for whatever reason, the Alpha the Alpha Tauri works well on on a Saturday, and not not so well in in Sunday conditions. So need to work on that for sure. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was disappointing because, you know, Pierre Gasly, as of late, it was, uh, was it the U.S. Grand Prix or Mexico where he'd start and finish fourth? Gasly did? Yeah. It's not universal that it's always Saturday strength and Sunday pain, but uh, it definitely seems to be Gasly especially is always punching above his weight on Saturdays. You know, he's he's a bit of a Mr. Saturday of his own. Hmm. And and then Sunday, you know, the reality of the pace of the car sets in a little bit. But there are times where the car and he remains strong on Sunday and has uh, a really impressive results. It hasn't put him on the podium much, but Gasly, I think, has, in terms of his rating as a driver, he's done well to recover quite a bit from his time next to Max Verstappen at Red Bull. Oh, yeah, remarkable resurgence, really, because uh, it could have killed his F1 career, um, that uh, horror show with Max in the Red Bull for, what was it, three quarters of a season. But, yeah, he's bounced back very well, actually. We've got to talk about McLaren. I mean, yeah, we, they're uh, falling we, off. Well, I mean, they just had no luck at all in the race, did they? I mean, Norris uh, outqualified both Ferraris uh, in sixth, which obviously got uh, boosted by the penalties to um, Verstappen and Bottas. But he, uh, you know, and he was looking good for a fourth or maybe a more likely fifth place in the race until he got the puncture. And he still managed to salvage ninth, but really that was uh, pretty unfortunate, I thought, for him. And then Ricardo had some sort of software glitch <laughs> that meant they were telling him to save fuel from lap one. So he had no race pace at all. So uh, a yeah. bit of a disaster for McLaren. It's handed third place in the Constructors' Championship to Ferrari now, I think. They are now 39 and a half points ahead in yeah. the Constructors. So it's, it's all but done. Uh, there, it's been such a shame because that was such a great battle to watch those two go back and forth, and it's kind of fallen off. Yeah, so we, you know, the question is, can Norris cling on uh, to his uh, fifth place in the drivers' championship ahead of Leclerc, who's only one point behind him, and uh, Saints, who's only seven and a half points behind him? So, can can Norris at least salvage that for McLaren? Is the question. And to that end. Uh, Speaking of, so you're absolutely right, but to the end of uh, Constructors' Championships, it was also a fantastic day for Alpine, forgettable for Alpha Tauri. Those two were tied going into this, and now Alpine has a 25-point lead after this race. So 100, 137 for Alpine, 112 for Alpha Tauri, fifth and sixth in the Constructors. Yeah, that's, um, you know, as far as the Constructors, it's really tight at the top, which is five points between Mercedes and Red Bull. And everything else seems to be done, doesn't it? <laughs> Second through tenth looks like it's all set. So really, we just have to watch for the two big boys to see who wins that battle. Yeah, because I think we, we had a tiny little debate about this a couple of Grand Prix ago, but it does seem like now Williams is starting to get pretty comfortable with its eighth in the constructors. There would have to be some big points grabs from Alfa Romeo these last two Grand Prix. Yeah, as Alfa Romeo have only scored 11 points so far after uh, 20 rounds, it's unlikely that they're going to score more than 12 in the remaining two, I would suggest. Right. I, uh, but uh, I, the, the team I thought that flew completely under the radar that actually had a really good weekend was Aston Martin. I don't recall actually seeing much footage of them at all uh, 
during the weekend. Lance yet, Stroll finished sixth. Yeah. And Vettel, and Vettel got a point in tenth. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So beating both Ferraris, not a bad weekend, really, for Mr. Stroll or Aston Martin. And, you know, they're, they're not really, they're in sort of no man's land in terms of constructors. They're not certainly not going to catch Alfa Tauri, I don't think. Um, and it's a bit of a drop down. Uh, from where they have been in seventh. But still, I mean, it's good to see them being able to put in strong points uh, earning performances. Totally agree with that. And it's been nice to see them have those performances. It's in, And it was interesting to see that it was Lance Stroll leading the way this time around, not uh, Vettel. Um, I do want to dig in just a little bit more about what you thought of where's your head at with the track surface, the curbing, and the tire themselves. Botas, he had the tire failure, but he also went three laps over what Pirelli recommended the tire could do, and he also went three laps over starting with full tank of fuel, so it was the heaviest the car would be when he went three laps over. And then, you know, some of the other guys were within what Pirelli recommended the tire could handle, but then maybe maybe they were getting a little bit aggressive with the curbing and uh, to be fair, before we get too far, I do, this is a good time to remind that Pierre Gasly, when he bumped the curve, that actually cracked a part of his wing, and the wing actually is what cut his tire on Saturday. But on Sunday, we had, you know, what was it, three, four tire failures? I mean, where where's your head at with, this is cool, interesting racing, versus, oh man, someone's got to up their game? Yeah, so Pirelli were pretty adamant that it was a two-stop race. And so they felt that the front left was so heavily loaded and, and with the aggressive curbing that was being used by the drivers, uh, that combination would result in, in definitely some marginal conditions. And clearly a one-stopper was possible if you did it the sensible way, which is you know stop fairly early when you're on a heavy fuel tank and, and obviously the, the load is greatest on the tyre, and then get off and, and run the balance of the race uh, when the car's a little lighter, and a number of, of drivers and teams made that work. But the particularly Bottas, I mean, he was trying to do it in a reverse way, more than half the laps on his first set of tyres before changing, and clearly it, it was too much for the, for the front left tyre. I don't know if Mercedes felt that they had to do that to get him in the right track position, uh, because he seemed to be having you know, trouble passing people. But whatever, it was it was certainly the wrong decision. He should have had a more aggressive tyre changing strategy, I think. And he should have been able to, to use the, the inherent pace advantage of the Mercedes more effectively, there's no doubt about that. I mean, why a driver needs to be told by their team boss to crack on and start passing people is beyond me. You know, you're, you're a Formula One driver, supposedly one of the best drivers in the world, just get on with it and pass people. Um, I so, have a feeling that Botas would argue that he didn't need to hear from Total Wolf that he should pass people. It's not like it didn't cross his mind. That would be that would be my assumption. Well, I mean, so you think it's pure coincidence that he hadn't passed anyone prior to Toto getting on the radio and then started passing people after he uh, after he heard from him? I mean, <laughs> it's extraordinary. It it it's unfortunate timing, but. I, I'm willing to bet that yes, that Valtteri was in fact trying to pass people. <laughs> maybe he was. Maybe he was given some instructions from his engineer about tire management or something along those lines. And Toto said, "No, no, 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 no. Get around these people. This is ridiculous." Maybe he just big timed his uh, race engineer and said, "No, get on with this." 
Yeah, as, as for the other three, both Williams drivers had punctures. Um, and I don't really know exactly the details around their tyre changing strategy. But it looks like, for whatever reason, Williams got that wrong, or their car particularly worked the, the front left hard. And then uh, Norris was the most curious, because I think they actually caught caught the tyre before it fully failed, which was good. But obviously it, it wasn't his strategy to do a two-stop, which was bad. So uh, it was, um, yeah, it was definitely curious. And, um, you know, certainly some teams figured it out better than others, right? And, and so Alpine, you have to say Ferrari and Aston Martin, as we mentioned, certainly got their strategies right and other teams didn't. I mean, going on to Ferrari a little bit more, I mean, Charles Leclerc had a weird weekend, didn't he? I mean, he has been phenomenal. Oh, the cracked frame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, f- phenomenal since he's been in the sport, you know, putting, obviously, Vettel, uh, you know, killing Vettel's uh, career at Ferrari, essentially. And we know that Carlos has, has put him under a bit more pressure this season. But to qualify 13th, that's, pretty, that's a pretty poor result. That's probably the worst result I can think of for Charles Leclerc since he's been in a, in a Ferrari, wouldn't you say? And saying, I can't tell you why the car's yeah. not faster, but something's up. Which led to something that I thought was, you know, that many people were impressed with, including myself, that he was right. Something was wrong with that chassis. He got a new chassis. And they found like a hairline fracture somewhere. Many people were impressed with his sensitivity to that. Wow. Okay. I didn't. I didn't catch that. So that's interesting. So his pace, because he obviously uh, was certainly a bit, a bit more racy on Sunday. But still, I mean, eighth. I guess. I guess that's pretty much where the Ferrari was, wasn't it? But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was an odd weekend for Ferrari and and him in particular. I would say whether it was uh, all down to him, maybe not. But but still odd. So how do you see the, the last two races playing out then? Who's your money on for the for the title? Ooh, boy. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. I am genuinely curious about this final engine that Hamilton seems to have queued up on the ready. What he did in Brazil was outstanding, and it showed just impressive, impressive performance on a number of different levels. How much of that is engine? If Toto is telling the truth that that engine is going back into the car for Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia is supposed to be an impressively quick place, that could be telling. Are we going to go into the final Grand Prix with the two of them basically even on points? It's, it's, it's genuinely possible. And then Abu Dhabi, they theoretically changed the track to make it easier for passing. Does not have a history of being easy to pass on. So I think... Potentially one of the most telling moments of this championship could be qualifying at Abu Dhabi. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, Max won there in 2020. Red Bull worked really well around that track. Hamilton was recovering from COVID, which I think affected his performance a little bit. But it was certainly a strong weekend by Max and, uh, and Red Bull last year. And you're absolutely right. The way the track is configured in prior years, it's been, it's been a bear to overtake on. I mean, obviously, that's what killed... Uh, Alonso's efforts to win the title for Ferrari back in, what was it, 2012, um, when they got their pit strategy wrong and he couldn't overtake anyone and, and the championship went over to, to Sebastian. It's, yeah, the reconfiguration may have helped matters, but we really won't be able to tell until Sunday, will we? But it, yeah, it could, I mean, it, you're right, if, if Lewis can win with fastest lap in, in Saudi Arabia, 
then we will be all square <laughs> on points with Max having won nine races and, and Lewis eight, obviously, if he adds uh, Saudi. So that would be an extraordinary <laughs> finale yeah. um, and, and cap one of the most incredible seasons uh, in Formula One's history, I would say. Yeah, and we do have a week off going into this Grand Prix. And uh, because we are getting late into the year, Chris and I will also take a week off. We will be back with you guys to talk about the next Grand Prix at Saudi Arabia after that race is held on the 5th. But we're not done with this podcast just yet because, like I said earlier, I had a fantastic interview with Ricky Taylor of Wayne Taylor Racing. So let's go to that now. Ricky Taylor, driver of uh, Wayne Taylor Racing, the Acura DPI car in the uh, 2021 WeatherTech Championship. I think I got it right. How are you? Season just ended. How are you? Yeah, I, like you said, just ended. It's a little bit amazing that it's over. Uh, a little bit, you know, you're always a little bit let down after the season. Even even if you win the championship, it's always a little bit of a, you know, low on your emotions. Like, ah, it's over. I, you know, you have nothing to do for a little bit. And you you kind of live off of that uh, pressure and tension. And, and then when you finish the season, it's it's a little empty feeling, and I think especially this year, the way it ended. But yeah, really proud of the proud of the year for sure. Well, I mean, you were you were in the championship lead until God, like what thirty seconds before the checkered flag? <laughs> yeah, at uh, yeah. Petit Le Mans Road, Atlanta. I mean, you guys were fighting for the championship, fighting for I believe it was second position. I hope that's correct. Yes, and then, but in all of that effectively fighting for the drivers and cons- and team championship in real time right then and there. What, I mean, talk about living off of pressure and tension. I can't imagine it getting much higher. Yeah. I, I still can't believe it came down to that. I think, you know, the way the season went, obviously us starting the year with a lot of success at Daytona and the first half of the year was like, ah, this is going to be smooth sailing. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, you know, a reporter said at one point in the year, Right before Laguna, the Jaws music has started and the 31 is kind of coming on strong. And I was like, ah, we don't hear it yet. And <laughs> we were like, still, okay, we just need to have a decent second half of the year. And Road America came and it didn't go well. We had a fat tire. And then Long Beach, we got absolutely just blown away there on, on pace. And then next thing you know. And that's the Acura race on top of everything else. Exactly. exactly. That, that didn't help either. Yeah. <laughs> And then we come to Petit and it's like, okay, all we have to do, if we just can out-qualify them, which qualifying has been our biggest strength in the history of this car, like that's the one thing it does better than anything is put down a fast lap time. Whether we are fast in the race or not, at least we're always qualifying well. So qualify ahead of them, that should have been a problem. And then we, can, we only have to finish one position behind them in the race and we'll be champions. And then the race weekend comes along and we have less than no pace it is yeah. like the biggest struggle we've ever had or that i've ever seen in this team and we qualified last and they qualified first <laughs> and <laughs> and so the, like you said the championship came all the way down to you know the last last couple of stints and i'm just thinking to myself there's no way that the whole season of whatever like 60 something hours of racing comes down to the last lap yeah and then the, the rest is history i guess <laughs> Right. And, you know, it, it was, from a fan perspective, incredible. And 
you have to really appreciate and respect that there was this championship thing to follow. But from the team perspective, especially after, just as you said, he had a really strong start, won the opening race and the biggest race, you could definitely argue, uh, 24 hours Daytona. Um, You also won at Mid-Ohio and a lot of strong showings. Um, and you and you did win Laguna Seca later in the year as well. I want to make sure everyone knows knows that part as well. But it's ironic to think about not even it coming down to the last ten hour race, <laughs> but the last lap of that race. So it's one of those as a fictional story, no one would believe it kind of circumstances, right? I mean, yeah. so. Uh, now that you have a little bit of hindsight, can you look back at that and appreciate the fact that you were, that you had that experience, that you were in, in that experience in the first place, even though it didn't come your way? Yeah. I, I think first of all, we're always thankful just to be able to have this opportunity and like that we're fighting for these situations. And it, it does seem a little surreal that it came down to that. You know, the, the way that it went, like you said, if, if, if somebody told me this story, I'd say it was fake. Like, it's not going to come down to the last lap, last corner. But the way it was going, you know, we were strong in the race. And sometimes the traffic goes your way. Sometimes it doesn't go your way. And when I first got in the car with just under two hours to go, I, I made a mistake and I went off and lost about, you know, eight seconds there. And then the gap eventually grew out to about 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. Uh, with only two stints to go and I'm thinking God, like I feel good in the car the car's working well but at that point things weren't falling our way and the traffic was just kind of not going our way and it seemed like they were getting some breaks and the gap grew out like crazy I'm thinking oh, this I can't believe it's going to end like this I'd like to at least have a have a chance and then over the next stint and a half the traffic started going back my way and I'm like it's funny how it can go like that like you get a whole stint that just and getting all the breaks and the rhythm is good. And then the gap started to close and all of a sudden it's under 10 and I can see the, I can see the leaders and, and then the Mazda gets around him. And I'm like, and he didn't change front tires. So I'm thinking, wow, okay, we really have a chance. I need to get up there and put some pressure on. And with about 10 minutes to go, the gap was only, you know, a second and a half, two seconds, kind of ebbing and flowing. I could never get to him. Like, the the way the traffic was falling, I could never get right up to him to have a have a proper look. And I was thinking, like, just how much risk am I going to take getting through GT cars to get to the back of him? And then the white flag comes out, and I see ahead that we got a couple of GTs this lap, and like just praying to myself, like, come on, I, I hope yeah. I hope he can catch one in a in a place that's going to cost him some time. And he got he got two right in the perfect places. And so we go on the back straight, right out of turn seven. You got two, you got one corner, one brake zone to go. And as soon as we came out of seven, I put all of my tools, my brake bias, my anti-roll bars. I put everything where I wanted it because I knew I was going. I was gonna, I was gonna make a move. And I wanted my everything the way that giving me the best chance of of making the corner as I could. And you know, the thought with all the thoughts had gone through my head already before I got in the car of, you know, the hard work the team has done and like all that goes into the whole season. Like the guys only got the car this time last year or, you know, this time last year, basically. And to be fighting for the championship in the first year. And there's just so many like emotional reasons to, you know, want to win this for the guys and, you know, all the work that they've done to put us in the position. And 
Philippe had an amazing stint and Alex did a great job too. So like I, I made up my mind that I was going before, before we even got to the break zone. And then, uh, and then he braked and I waited a half a second later and I braked and yeah. It's so funny to me. I, I've always been, you know, because I've lived it myself racing in lower level series than this, of course, but you always have this like perceived understanding of like, this is where the break zone is for this corner. But then there's always, it. there's always <laughs> just another level of like, the break zone is like a couple of moments after the guy next to me breaks and that's the break <laughs> zone and it doesn't matter. Any other part doesn't matter. It's just so funny. But yeah. uh, let me, <laughs> let me just take a moment to say, Thank you so much for putting on such an amazing show and such an amazing end to such an amazing season. I'm certainly, because I think so highly of you as a driver and personally that I'm bummed it didn't go your way, but really happy to see that you got the chance to do it. And that was super cool. You mentioned it. Your team just got the car last year. It's you're in a bizarre situation. This almost never happens, but you at the end of, uh, you know, summer of last year, it was announced and the end of last year, it happened. Penske was leaving uh, IMSA and uh, Acura was not. So you ended up in this bizarre situation where you were with Penske for three years and now you're moving back to your dad's team, Wayne Taylor Racing. So you're switching teams, but you're not switching cars, yeah. which is just really bizarre. Yeah. But what what is it? How has it been? having three years with such a powerhouse name like Penske and then going back to your dad's team. And I want to add real quick, that sounds like you're going back to the local small. <laughs> your dad's team is also a major sports car team with tons of success. He won a lot of championships with Cadillac. Um, not just this, not just now with Acura, but how has it been transitioning from Penske to uh, back to your dad's team? Yeah, I think, I think everything you said is perfectly accurate. And I think there are advantages of being a big team and there's advantages of being a small team. I think in this situation, I think, you know, Penske obviously was massive, has been massively successful in everything that they've done. And they developed this car and it's two-time championship winning car already. And obviously they did a fantastic job, but I think the strength of Wayne Taylor Racing is that they're small. And I, I think after after Daytona, somebody asked like, "What makes what makes the team so good in these situations?" And I think sports car racing is all about your ability to sort of pivot and adapt, and and that's something that they're. It kind of made me think about that answer. I had to think about it for a while, but they've always been really good at that. Everybody kind of looks outward to to learn and is not afraid to change how they do things. And obviously, there's some things that they have a process and all the rest of it, but being a small team, it's easy to make changes. And, you know, when, when you do get, you know, a whole new car, you know, adapting like that and, and teaching the group of guys how to work on this thing or, and so that, that wasn't just, you know, starting from completely scratch. That was, you know, HPD being, being a partner in it all, using a lot of the knowledge from the Penske program to, to educate the team on the starting point. And then sort of WTR learns how to, you know, learns how to start off and, has a lot of starting setups and things, but then they get to add their personal flair to it and and kind of take that next step of you know what's a what's a fresh perspective on this this problem that we've had for three years and 
Yeah. I think that's all where I think that's where all the magic happened was was in that sort of we hit the ground running quickly at Daytona. And obviously we weren't the fastest car, and but that's not always what wins Daytona. But um and then from there it was it was kind of a, applying a new new perspective on the problem and and some some interesting new perspectives, I'd say. Well, and I you, you kind of halfway answered both of my next two questions but I'll ask them anyway, see if we get new insight out of it. And I'll turn the two questions into one. Is there anything that you learned from Penske that you took to you to Wayne Taylor racing and said, Hey, this is a really good way to do this thing. And at the exact time, same time is, was there anything that you really missed about the way Wayne Taylor racing performed something that you were so happy to return to? Yeah, I think, yeah, the first question, I guess, uh, Penske has a lot of people and a lot of <laughs> yes, they do. They hire. They're experts in what they do. Like, you want a software guy? There's a guy that's writing code 24 hours a day. You want a guy? You want to build a part? Send it over to the, you know, fab manufacturing 3D printer, whatever you need. Yep. Yep. It'll be printed yep. the next day, and you can go try it. Um, obviously, those resources are incredibly useful. And you can, the one thing I struggled with the most going to Penske was um, you can ask for anything. And like, if somebody asks you how, how could you, what could we do to help you do your job better? And it's not always the easiest question. You're always happy to complain and say, ah, if I just had more money, I would go faster. <laughs> it's not so easy when they ask you to actually ask you like, well, what would you spend the money on? And so like, that experience of what do I need to, to be a better driver? What do I need from the car to, to go faster? And what's going to make the car you know, easier to, you know, more ergonomical inside to make changes faster and whatever, whatever it is, it made me change the way I thought about things mm, and okay. kind of opened okay. my mind a bit. So if we did want to redesign how the roll bars were adjusted or redesign the layout on the steering wheel or feedback on data or whatever it was, you know, they did a, a simulator. They, the software guy built a, a little simulator software to learn all the buttons on the wheel. And that's something that no other team's going to do. Right. Um, so all <laughs> these things are just, they're, they're really great. And that's something that you can't really replicate. I think what makes Penske great is they've got a lot of experience. So they've got a lot of processes that really work well in how they interpret data and how they, you know, do things aerodynamically from the IndyCar side that, you know, Wayne the Racing wasn't doing. And I think this car specifically prototypes are basically an IndyCar and how sensitive they are. And they're probably more sensitive than an IndyCar in terms of, you know, how you run them ride height wise and things, just because it's a giant wing under the car instead of, you know, front and rear wing, it's the splitter. So it's even more sensitive. And I think a lot of those, the way that they interpret some of the data and, and things, I just, not to say that I could, I could teach them how to do it. I'd just say, <laughs> I could just bring up ideas. I'd say, maybe we can think about it this way or, or look out for this. And then the winter the racing thing, I think it, it, what I missed from being at winter the racing before, it feels like, like Penske was a big family. But when you back at winter the racing, it still feels like a family, aside from being an actual family. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, it's small enough to where, you know, all the guys and 
Like there's it's more, it's more intimate. Is that a fair? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very much. Um, much more intimate. You maybe can't ask for all the, the giant things anymore, but you have that perspective back from Penske. But there were some things on the, on the flip side when I was at Penske where can we make this change? I had this thing with like a nutrition company and it never happened because it was just, there were too many layers to go through in the team. Right. Couldn't make it happen. We're going to the racing. I'm like, I got this this partner, and they want to do stuff with our, the nutrition of the team, and boom, it happened. And now it's like full gas. And so, just like that ability to to be able to make make an influence on the team, and you feel it a lot more in a small team. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's that um, being like an instrumental part as opposed to just a cog in the big machine. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which is weird to hear. Level. It's weird yeah. to hear a driver say that because you're always. An incredibly be incredibly important part of the team right but uh i you can get that feeling at any level i suppose yeah yeah exactly yeah i think you know a lot of people say the driver is the quarterback but i think you know different teams treat the, it just has has a different culture and mm. you know some teams are very you know engineer focused and some are you know very you know whole team focused and i think Penske was very very much like about the collective and you know, it's not about one car, it's about both cars and everything was kind of layered around that. But, you know, the drivers had their had their say and their input and it's just, it might not have been as easy to make a difference. Got it. Yeah, totally understand. So what what hasn't changed, just you're, you're continuing with this car, which means you're also continuing the relationship with Acura. So what is that process? What has that been like? Because, I mean... You you had a relationship with uh, Cadillac before this. Now that it's been four years with Acura, though, I yeah. imagine that you've you've developed a deeper understanding of that brand uh, than you started with. Yeah, I think you know, uh, growing up as a racing fan, first of all, Honda and Acura have been in racing forever. Like growing up, whether it was the you know racing against Penske with the Spiders and the and Acura with the RX01 and and then running the car with the big front wheels and they've just been, they've been in it for a long time. And um, obviously Honda back to the F1 days and everything. Uh, the first round, I don't know if I realized their history before coming to the, join the team and join the family, but the, like, I, I couldn't be happier first of all. And then kind of joining the HPD side of it, which is the American the American performance side. Yeah. Honda um, performance development is the acronym. Yeah. Yep. Joining that side over the four years, it's definitely, it definitely hasn't been just a flat line of, you know, this is how things are. It has taken, you know, such huge jumps, um, especially in the last two years. Dr. David Salters, who's now, uh, I think he's CEO or president, or I don't know what the title is, um, but he's now sort of running the ship over there. And he has made such amazing developments. We got to do it. We've done a tour almost every year, barring the COVID times, but we just recently did one. And it's like going to a whole new place. Mm. Um, the dyno and the manufacturing side and like they do everything there. They've got a whole whole new aero group and it really motivates you when you go and you see that firsthand what they're doing. And I think what makes Honda very unique is not a lot of manufacturers have a direct manufacturer partner 
for their performance. You know, I know GM doesn't doesn't have that racing connection directly. You know, they've got partners like ECR and Hendrick, and they've got all the Brad people. Miller and yeah, yeah, and but Honda and HPD, it's so much more connected that racing. You feel like racing is part of the DNA of the company. And that was just a one comparison that I've known from my experience, obviously, but sure, sure. Like the, the feeling that racing is important to them means a lot to somebody who like racing is, is the most important thing to me. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Yeah. Seeing that connection and how much they have like directly invested in, in motorsports is super exciting. And, and like I said, going there and getting to visit and see it, like shake everybody's hand, uh, you know, face to face, how much, passion they all have for it is is motivating for sure and so yeah really exciting to to be in that family and i think i think wtr at the in the same breath is super excited as well i know the engineering side is loves working with the whole team over there yeah that's great moving on to the other drivers you spent time with you know last few years your teammate was uh, elio castroneves he came along for a couple of the races this year and you've been working full-time with the uh, philippe Albuquerque and boy oh boy his name once you get to in the rhythm of spelling it but like there's a, it seems like it's actually easier to pronounce than the, the spelling would suggest I don't mean that in any offense it's just that. Um, but uh, how's it how's it been having the new teammate with Philippe and uh, how how was it to work with uh, Elio on a part-time basis and also Rossi at Daytona yeah I think you know, Elio over the past three years was amazing. Uh, he was just, like, I don't think you could find a, a better guy to, to spend spend that much time with. And, um, and then Alex, as a part-time guy, the whole, you know, the whole time we ever, we ever knew him, he was always a third driver. And you honestly can't find a better third driver. He's got a memory that's just kind of freakish. Like, he can remember <laughs> more about button, the buttons and TC settings and things than I do. And I do... 10 races a year and so he, like you just know every time he gets in the car he, you don't have to fill him in on you know remind him of anything he just goes out does the job he's very quick like that's a given um but some drivers you know they need laps to kind of get up to speed and get comfortable and he just gets in and goes and another thing that he does really well is as a third driver sometimes you want to be selfish and I need laps. I want to feel comfortable. I don't want to let the team down. And so you have a lot of personal concerns and that takes away sometimes from your ability to contribute to the program. I think a lot of third drivers will get in and just, you know, think of the on-track stuff and I want to be fast and, and do good on, on, on the race. Um, but he contributes every test day, you know, every, like his, his feedback and everything is like, if we're not driving the car a lot, not knowing, you know, how we develop it and stuff, from a day-to-day basis, he contributes so much uh, to the program, which is, it's, it's hard to find somebody that does all those things so well. I'm glad I don't race against him in an Indy car because I hate to know <laughs> what he does, what he can do full-time, you know? Uh, and then Philippe, honestly, finding a teammate is, is hard in sports car racing because uh, I think similar to how I said with the third drivers, people tend to be, you know, selfish as well. Like that's, I think the default racing driver setting is, I want to be fast. I want to be faster than my teammate and uh, I want to win all the races. And there's nothing wrong with the last part of that, but you have to, you have to work together. And there was no doubt that he was fast. Number one, 
uh, after winning winning Le Mans and the World Endurance Championship, and he's won Daytona and he's won all the big races. He's he's raced in America uh, plenty, knows all the tracks, and so the decision was pretty easy. Like if we can get him, let's put. I'd love to be my teammate and the team. The team loved them as well. And then once getting it, but it's not until you can work with them that you kind of figure out what they're like to work with. And uh, he's been great, like super open on the weekends. If one of us is feeling more comfortable than the other, uh, it's a completely open book. I'm not feeling great. Then he'll, you know, help me out and look at data with me, video, blah, blah, blah. And vice versa. He's not afraid to say if, if one of us is more comfortable than the other, hey, you go qualify. Um, that's going to give us a better shot. And that makes us better. Like, I think if, if, if one person is open to, like, opening the door, then it's going to go both ways. And uh, I think that's made us super strong. And aside from that, he works really well with the team. Everybody loves him. He's super, super nice and easy to get along with. And, yeah, at the end of the day, he's extremely fast. And it sounds like if I could summarize what you're saying, it sounds like he is the type of driver where you can quickly build trust and you, yeah. you trust him completely. And, uh, and that makes it easier to be completely honest and not, and not have concerns tied to that. Is that, is that a fair? Yeah. Thing? Yeah. yeah. I think it's funny. Um, obviously everybody asks about Daytona in 2017 when we crashed into each other. Mm. Um, and so like our, we'd probably never spoken before that. Like, I don't, I think we knew who each other were. We probably like followed each other's careers and blah, blah, blah. But the, we probably never knew each other personally before that. And the next day I, I called him. And it's funny that like in such a bad experience that we had together, um, I think that's where our trust probably started. Like you said, mm-hmm. like trust is probably a good word to use. And we gained a lot of respect for one another. Like, you know, how we, how we expect to be raced and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, so now that we're on the same team together, uh, yeah, like you said, the trust is, is a good core, you know, foundation for it. And yeah, I, and I think this weekend was probably a good example of you want your teammate to give everything. And I know, I know he would do the same for me. Like he's going he's gonna to go for every possible opportunity he can to win for the team. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the same. Yeah. And, and that's great to have that in your teammate, especially you, as you're describing your, the entire team as, you know, like a family and obviously you need to have trust in your family members. So that's all great. We're getting into this really potentially fantastic time in sports car racing where uh, Le Mans and the world endurance championship and IMSA have come up with ways to, converge the series and and the classes together a little bit and uh, that's coming a little bit more in the future but you're racing IMSA in the middle of all this happening so what's IMSA racing like and what do you think of the different rule changes coming we're losing GT Le Mans but uh, we're gaining this new what is it LMDH class just more and more attention seems to be pouring on IMSA What's that been like from your point of view? Yeah, I think obviously it's a shame that GTLM is going away. That's such a great class. Um, but I mean, there's never been a more exciting time in my lifetime for prototype racing. 
nail and VH category is, I don't want to say like a, a DPI 2.0, it's gained so much more traction than that. It doesn't, doesn't do it justice. It's all of the manufacturers, almost every one of the manufacturers from around the world is at least looking at LMDH slash hypercar. You know, for, for me, I feel really lucky to be in this point in my career um, aligned with a manufacturer that's going to be participating in it. But like you said, uh, I'm racing in IMSA, and I think IMSA the, has the best races in the world, uh, except for one, except for Le Mans. So um, <laughs> if, if I had to pick... I mean, Spa's pretty good, Ricky. I have to, I mean, Spa's pretty good. Yeah, true, true. But if I had to pick what I wanted to do, and if I had to do a year of racing, I would pick, I'd pick, let me do Le Mans and let me do the IMSA season. Like, outside of that, it would just be a bonus. And the, the, the fact that we can do all of it with one car is pretty awesome. And so I don't know if we're going to Lamar yet, uh, but just the fact that it's el- eligible. And I think that first, that first year at Lamar is going to be, uh, is going to be epic. I think that's the way, that's the year to go win it. Uh, after that, you know, it, it yeah, who knows? There's going to be a lot more yeah. variables. Yeah. Um, but also, my, my favorite day of the year is normally uh, the roar uh, at the beginning of each year because you get to see everybody's new paint schemes and driver lineups and everything's fresh and new and it's a new year. Uh, but when the roar comes in 2023 and it's going to be 15 proper factory prototypes of this new era, it's just going to give me goosebumps uh, thinking about it. But I think it's going to be absolutely amazing. Just the the level of competition. I don't think I don't think sports car racing has ever ever seen that that many numbers of of that quality. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I based on my own memory, I would certainly agree with that. I mean, it's kind of just amazing that it, in a, in a lot of ways, it's very tempting to say finally something has happened because yeah. it seems so ridiculous that it wasn't for so long. But does all of that momentum for twenty three? put a weird damper on 22 though, because <laughs> you, you have another season with these DPIs, you have another season with more of that buildup, but without it coming. So does that do anything to change your outlook on 2022? <laughs> yeah, this, it probably doesn't sound good if you were to write it, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I wish we could just fast forward through 22. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you um, win the championship, of course, right? Which is yeah, still possible. Uh, yeah for sure yeah Um, no it's we still have this season to go and I mean we have a lot of testing coming up this year so um, I'm sure the team wishes it was probably only coming in 24 because it's going to be a lot of work and you know we're supposed to take delivery of the first car in uh, in March and so everything's happening like everything's going along really quickly we got to sit in a mock-up tub talk about layout in the cockpit and it's really exciting also as a driver to be involved at on the ground level of a, of a new car. Sure. And that's where it's kind of unique getting to work with, with HPD and seeing the partnership between the WTR HPD and then, and then Orica on the the constructor side. Sure. 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 Um, And so seeing how all of that kind of comes together and how everybody works, works together, you know, it's, it's been really unique getting to have some input and to see how a new car is, is, designed and built and and then we're going to watch it go through its testing phases and develops through all of this year which is probably going to go super quickly and i think 
everybody's going to be worn out by, by this time next year, because I think we have in excess of 50 days of testing, of actual on-track testing. Wow. So it's going to be busy. Yeah, wow. That's it. Yeah, that's incredible to think about that on top of the races. And yeah. it, it's so exciting. It, it, at least I would think that you're, you're going to be testing something that is, we're in this incredible phase in motorsport where we're transitioning to more and more electrification of power units, power plants, engines, whatever you want to call them. More and more, we're going to be propelled by electricity. So to be at this part of it, which is the most exciting level and some of the fastest development of it. I think even on that, like the nerdy part of it is yeah. also pretty darn cool. So, yeah. Yeah. I think again, going back to like when you get to live your life, you know, I think we're in a cool time. Like obviously we're not all, we're going to be a part of this, but I think in 20 years, I don't know if, the, if full electric is going to be that interesting because it'll be also refined then. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> this phase, like you said, is super cool. And um, just the fact that there's a lot of, just in the last, you know, four or five years, love or hate whatever Formula E is doing, the battery technology and all that technology that's come out of that yeah. has trickled down to where we are. And it's amazing to look at how far that stuff has come. And I can imagine it's just going to continue to develop. Uh, getting to like see how things are coming together with this car. I don't know the first thing about electric motors, hybrids. I know the the very basics, but... I'm going to need a lot of, you know, classes on how this stuff works and how the regen is going to be, you know, strategized. And already we know we have to take classes on safety of, you know, what to touch, sure. not to touch. And sure, it's, sure. It's all so interesting and it's so like intriguing how, how people are going to use it. I think it's going to create some separation and people that have more expertise in that field. And we're lucky Dr. Dr. Salters from HPD comes from from Ferrari and Mercedes so he has a lot of F1 experience and he's brought a lot of that to, to HPD obviously Honda is very involved currently with hybrid technology in F1 I think we have a lot of good things on our side a lot of really extremely smart people and I'm just waiting for you know some sort of education on how I can contribute because there's so much that I don't know um, well you, you you can't call it the throttle pen- pedal anymore. It's the accelerator now. Or maybe <laughs> maybe the electric pedal? I know yeah, true. true. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't wait to see you contribute because obviously you contribute very quickly and sometimes you just got to send it. And I love that you go. Yeah. Um, one final question for you. Um, as you may or may not remember, I'm the oldest of three children. You're the oldest among you and Jordan. So obviously you're much, much better than Jordan is. <laughs> how, how do you make sure he knows that without gloating about it? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess I just have to do my best to convince him to stay in GT racing. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yes. Well, and he, he did, he raced the, that GTLM car for Corvette mm-hmm. and yeah. he did manage to win that championship. So it's nice for him to, it's nice to give him a little something every once in a while. It's like, <laughs> exactly. you know, it's like giving, exactly. giving your younger brother a participation trophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, only, if only he knew that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ricky Taylor, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Great to chat with you. Great to learn. 
uh, the inside track of just how this crazy 2021 season went and indeed what the future of IMSA looks like from your perspective. Thank you so very much. Yeah. Thanks, Robin. Yeah. Thanks for the talk. Yeah. I, I mean, honestly, Chris, Ricky is just a gentleman, very honest and open with his answers and just gives really interesting insight, not only to the season he had this year, but to what's coming in 2023 with the LMDH and LMH cars competing together at the 24 hours of Le Mans. That 2023 is going to be crazy exciting. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a great interview, Robin. Yeah. And I just loved how I saw you leaning forward on your chair, listening to the entire thing. Um, we are not quite done yet because, of course, I have a YouTube video to talk about. This one is short and sweet. It is less than 60 seconds long. And, in fact, it is less than 45 seconds long. And it is just just a few beautiful seconds of listening to that 2021 Porsche 718 Cayman GTS 4.0 run through a few gears, listening to that 4-liter naturally aspirated engine sing 7,800 RPM redline, beautiful mechanical sound. It's just, it's worth taking a moment to have a listen. Rumors are that Porsche is planning an electric 911. So maybe we all need to save that video clip for posterity. Chris, more than that, it's been announced basically that Porsche is going to build an EV718. The Cayman and the Boxster will be electric vehicles around 2025. So we're way far down that mine shaft now. We're, there's no turning back. I guess we, uh, we need to get our kicks from that instant talk. And uh, maybe we'll just have to uh, play soundtracks of V10s while we drive our electric cars around. I'm going to have an engine that is going to be a rock you like a hurricane. I don't know whether that's a V uh, configuration or if that's an inline configuration, but it's just any time... Anytime I floor, it's going to say, here I am. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. <laughs> but for now, I want to thank you for listening. Please take a moment to review us on iTunes or on whatever platform you get our podcasts. Please leave comments on the episode of your choice by going to funwithcars.com. As always, I can be reached at feedback at funwithcars.com. Tweet us at fun underscore with underscore cars. And check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash f. W cars. Chris, can't wait to see the final version of that longest hair worth eight points uh, rule script. It's going to be great. It's going to be facial hair, I think. Oh, lovely. I'm Robin Warner. Goodbye. <laughs>